Thank you, Josue. You got some additional verses, too, in that as well. You know, you got, you got some bonus scripture, which is, which is awesome. All right. Praise the Lord. Um, we are so excited to continue our series in the book of Acts, going to the ends of the earth, and what it means for the disciples of Jesus to go to the ends of the earth, filled with the Spirit. So last week, we continued in laying the foundation for the disciples' work, and that is the promised Holy Spirit which came down on the apostles, an act that that reminded them of this imagery of how God brings the dead to life like a mighty rushing wind and how God's power and His presence is symbolized in fire, that God's presence would be with His people. We saw that the Holy Spirit brought the nations to Jerusalem in a manner and form that gave gospel witness in reuniting a broken people of God and translating the gospel into their own language. So, in the space between last week's passage and this one, uh, the Apostle Peter preaches the gospel to this group who are wondering who this Jesus is, and he calls them to repent and to receive the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that the Apostles received. And 3,000 new converts begins the start of what we would call the church in the New Covenant. And so today, we are going to be exploring a little bit more about what this church is is all about. But first, uh, let's pray together. Father, may your spirit bless the preaching of your word that would pierce our hearts. For those of us who just might be looking for a nice lecture or an inspiring talk or something that just tickles the mind and the brain, um, Lord, would we submit ourselves underneath your word that the words that you would speak right now would reveal to us the true nature of the church, of how we belong to it, and how through this, the power of the gospel can go forth to the ends of the earth. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today's text in Acts 2, for those of us who have grown up in the church, or have ever been to a church membership class or anything like that? Uh, have any done any cursory Bible study on ecclesiology or even community? Uh, this text is perhaps one of the most well-known texts in Scripture regarding uh, the activity of the church. Now, we, we see this and we, we look at this as the perfect church, a par excellence model of what believers should be all about. Churches model themselves after uh, this paradigm, and long to be faithful to its mission of what these verses call us to do. Sometimes, however, um, the examinations of the activity of this passage and what it would have meant to the early church can be lost. And instead, we can replace what the early church has done and instead put in our own tradition, our own nostalgic take on church or of what these activities would mean. Uh, So when we read Acts 2, sometimes we interject and think first through our own sort of uh, upbringing, our cultural, religious tradition lens, and we often overlook and ask ourselves the question, what would have this really looked like at the start of the church? So when we look back to the original sources, which we we hope to do today, uh, we can then try to apply these things faithfully in our own context, and we're able to do so without falling into rigidity, tribalism, or legalism in our practices. So uh, this is the questions that we're going to try and tackle today. Uh, number one, what is a devoted church? Uh, number two, what is a united church? 
And number three, what is a growing church? Maybe controversial here. And in doing so, we're not going to try to be here overly prescriptive, uh, you know, saying like, oh, the way that we do things here at City of Hope is the best. We're just the greatest. Um, but rather, uh, consider what it means for a church in every generation to be faithful as Christ's body. So first, let's examine what is a devoted church. In verse 42, the first thing that we see right after the church was formed is that the believers devoted themselves to a set of activities. We see that they were uh, dedicated to four principal activities that marked their community. Number one, they were devoted to teaching. Uh, two, they were devoted to fellowship. Three, devoted to breaking of bread. And four, devoted to the prayers. Uh, so the first, let's take a look at the first one, which is teachings of the apostles. When we talk about the apostles' teaching, we're not talking about some other teaching that they would have given the people of God apart from Scripture. Uh, some scholars claim that, oh, the apostles' teachings are different than Scripture. It, it would have been the didache, a collection of the teachings of the apostles that were recorded and found in the second century teachings of the church. But, but that isn't what's in view here when we're talking about the apostles' teachings. It's the teachings that Christ gave to his disciples in the upper room at the end of Luke. Remember, Luke and Acts are sort of chapter 1 and chapter 2 of the same story. And that in the upper room, Christ revealed to them that all of Scripture speaks to Christ. And it speaks to the story of his redemption of not just individuals, but the world. So when the church is dedicating itself to the apostles' teaching, we must see that the teachings that the apostles are giving are not just trying to fill them with wise sayings, the purpose of life, to find enlightenment, or even just to find a way to be an ethical human being right, in hearing God's word. Now, now, those things are incredibly good and important, but they're not central to the apostles' teaching. What the church devoted itself to was a Christ-centered view of Scripture that poured out the gospel to feed the disciples of Christ. The teachings of Christ, in other words, showed that all that Scripture was pointing to landed on him. And from this Christ-centered view of worship, with Christ at the center, the outflow of everything else, the wisdom of Scripture, the moral transformation of Scripture, the direction and the purpose of our lives and its meaning, all these stem from Christ being, as we just sang, our firm foundation. And that this learning wasn't relegated to mere privatized Bible study but that this teaching and learning together scripture needed to be done together in community. Directly connected to this is the second devotion, to fellowship. They devoted themselves to fellowship, a word that in the original language is used only once here in the book of Acts. Now Paul uses this term a bunch of times in his epistles, but Luke directly chooses to use it here once. So when you see that, it's, it's like a big old break. You've got to slam and think to yourself, what is Luke mean with this word fellowship. Now these days, fellowship can be used very loosely or too rigidly. Uh, loosely, the term fellowship can be used to describe anything and everything used to justify Christians hanging out. That anyone who is not a Christian could look at that and go, uh, yeah, that just seems like you guys are just doing whatever, right? Uh, I remember as a young teenager, I was trying to justify playing hours of video games with my friends to my mom and dad and called it, oh, we're all Christians, it's Christian fellowship, much to the rightful skepticism of my parents. All right, so, you know, fellowship just simply can't mean just this overly broad, just getting people together. But, and I will say this, 
uh, we can swing too much the opposite way. The term fellowship can also be used too rigidly. As though only spiritualized activity counts as fellowship and everything else that is good in the Christian community doesn't count, right? So uh, someone who's holding to originally saying, all right, we stopped the Bible study, fellowship is over, right? <laughs> right? We stopped praying, fellowship is open. We're no longer fellowshipping right now. Uh, that isn't the force of that word either. The description of fellowship, according to the biblical scholar Daryl Bach, precisely translated means the phrase sharing in common. Fellowship means sharing in common. The kind of mutuality, the force of this word that takes place in marriage. And in this context of this community, fellowship is a link. It's a tie to true connection to one another in relational harmony. In other words, true fellowship is not just a hangout. It's not just a, a rigidly set time of spiritual practice. It's a real and true connection to each other where the person of Jesus Christ unites us bridging them to, us together in a way that produces a loving community. It's a shared link of Christ that brings together people who were once separated, people who were once divided across many different lines, and experience His grace and love when they gather together. So yes, in this way, yes, being present with one another is very much indeed a fellowship. And yes, of course, I'm not saying that set times in Bible study can't be fellowship either, but it's more than just the activity that defines the fellowship. It's the presence and living out Christ's teachings together in a real and tangible way. So it's a community that feels like family being together than rather doing together. All right, that's what fellowship is about. So the early church found ways for this being together to express itself tangibly in different activities, but it's not the activity itself that made it fellowship. It's the presence of a people committed to the love of Christ together. That defined it. And this leads to the third devotion that you see here, the breaking of bread. Now what we see here is that the early church loved to gather and eat together. You know, in a time where food and hunger scarcity were more prevalent issues than our overabundance of today, the church became a place where the community quite literally came together to eat, to break bread, and share in table fellowship for their own survival as a community. Now, some might translate this term of breaking bread to also mean that believers came to share the Lord's Supper. And indeed, many of their gatherings did just that. This is why Paul has to admonish the Corinthian church about treating the Lord's Supper like a party. But to limit this to a mere sacramental meal, uh, this phrase, breaking of bread, to merely the sacraments, would betray the usage of this term in the rest of the book of Acts, where we see breaking of bread being used in the context of just a regular meal. So the early church ate together. So food is this uniting force that brings together commonality and love and, and nurtures true love for one another. This is the beauty of why we care for each other by simply inviting one another to meals, to table fellowship. It doesn't have to even be great, ornate food. Um, you ever notice that when you're with great people, uh, the food always tastes good, right? doesn't really necessarily matter, right? This is why people make runs to White Castle, right? It, it's not necessarily about White Castle. It's about being together and experiencing great fellowship together. So if you're going to spend any amount of time with one another as a church, uh, we can do this over a meal. This is a biblical principle. Finally, uh, they devoted themselves to the prayers. Notice the qualification, the prayers. It's a term used to describe the act of corporate prayer together that would not be dissimilar to the daily prayers that they would have used to been doing in the temple worship of Judaism. 
United prayer was what the people of God contributed themselves to. So you know, in other words, a devotion to prayer is not merely just private, personal prayer, right? although that's very important and Christians should be dedicated to that for sure. Uh, they were devoted to this sense of community prayer together, a way that they would gather corporately to pray for each other. So in other words, praying together becomes an important reality for the church to experience, not just for uh, the pious few, the prayer warriors, to carry the burden of prayer for the church. So these four things that the church devoted themselves to are what the church has tried to model in the activity of the church throughout every generation. So Sunday worship has more or less been defined by the sense of devotion in ways that tries to remain faithful to these principles. We devote ourselves to a Christ-centered sermon to hear the teachings of Christ. We devote ourselves to fellowship, being a body not just for an hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday morning, but life beyond the walls of this church to grow in grace. We devote ourselves to the breaking of bread, potluck Sundays, the Lord's Supper every week, and sharing time in prayer together, corporate prayer, intentionally praying as a community. These are what a church should commit itself to. But you see, as we read on in these verses, it's more than just a devotion to these practices. And for that, we answer our second question. What is a united church? And these next set of verses give us some clarity as to the deeper dimensions of unity that the church had. Now, they were united in three very important aspects. The first, that they were united in commonality. As this church felt this sense of awe, from the experience of the Holy Spirit working through the apostles, if you look at verse 44, all who believed together had all things in common. This didn't mean that they didn't have distinct personalities or even different likes or dislikes. This wasn't sort of a, a flattening of all personal preferences or even how they were made. Uh, rather, this was a commonality that recognized the needs of each member and that these needs were felt by one another. In other words, united in commonality meant that they saw themselves together, connected in a way that went beyond their own individualistic sense of self and saw themselves as something, a part of something greater. In other words, their devotion led to a deep sense of longing for one another and seeking out each other. This should shatter our thoughts that, in other words, to be a Christian, all you need is God and yourself. You know, it's just me and my relationship with God. Uh, it's a terrible reduction of what it means to live as a Christian. The early church saw that being united, being united to Christ meant also being united to his body. So your relationship with Christ, in other words, will always be limited without a relationship with the church in a common connection together. Now, this, this, this connection, this sense of wanting to belong is, is a universal longing, isn't it? Everyone wants to belong to a community. Everyone feels the need to be connected to something that brings everyone together. It's become that sort of cliche marketing strategy, everything from social clubs to Olive Garden, saying that when you're here, you're family. So you have to ask yourself, what is the difference you know, between CrossFit, yoga, gaming forums, knitting clubs, and all these organizations versus what the church can provide? I mean, on the surface, after all, don't they all seem to be providing the same experiences? Various people groups coming together for a common cause, united in love for one another, rallying around each other, achieving something greater than the sum of its part. 
Uh, you know, so the more that I kind of thought about that question, I realized that um, there's one thing that the church provides in fellowship that all of these social clubs, all of these different communities don't. Other communities and groups, uh, though they might say this out loud, functionally treat you as a commodity. You are loved here because you contribute to helping the thing that we love flourish. In other words, they say that our love for you is contingent upon your membership dues, the brilliance of your thoughts, the way that you help sustain the organization, uh, and, and that's it. You are just a commodity in these communities. Uh, when I stopped paying my CrossFit dues three years ago, my time in that community was done. I couldn't show up to workouts for free and said, you know, but you said we were family, right? That, that, that's not how it works. The contract is over. I violated it. The family ceases because I no longer have anything to offer. So what separates the church, the church says this, uh, you are loved because Christ has already loved you. And he's loved you through the cross. And you are welcome to receive that love here even if you have absolutely nothing to offer us. In other words, the love of a true Christian fellowship is not contingent. It's based upon the unconditional love that Christ has for his people that enables us to love, that's what John says, why? Because he first loved us. The overflow of this fellowship then is contribution to the body, not because we stand to gain from it, but because rather it's a posture of gratitude gratitude. It's a posture that flows from grace and not the law for the church to care for one another. Because it's so easy, isn't it, uh, for churches to manipulate or unlovingly use its members like a commodity, to place heavy burdens on you all and say, well, you know, you're not truly fellowshipping if you're not burning yourself out and serving the church. Rather, it's, it's only from this place of gratitude where true service leads to a deep generosity for one another. So this united in commonality leads to then the second aspect, united in generosity. We read in verse 45, a stunning realization that they were giving generously to each other to the point where no one in the church community lacked. Now, whenever we enter into verse 45, uh, people always want a defense of their economic system when none is being presented here. All right? The capitalist wants their viewpoint represented here, says, ha, voluntary giving, right? Then they would be right. It was voluntary. It wasn't compulsed upon. The giving was demanding. The Marxist will look at verse 45 and say, ha, mutual care that led to equity, and they would be right. So you can proof text your economic system if you want, but these verses aren't about advocating your financial system. They're about a church being generous that overflowed from a mindset that what they had wasn't truly theirs to begin with. Uh, what's stunning to me, uh, which uh, my, my friend, uh, Pastor Moses Lee, reminded me of, is when you read the early church fathers and, and how they believed that the church should view wealth, uh, they were never against being wealthy, to be sure, but they rather were longing for the church to, to see their possessions in a different light. Uh, we have a couple of quotes here. Uh, Augustine of Hippo famously said that those who wish to make room for the Lord must find pleasure not in private but in common property. Basil Caesarea considered it a sin when one had the means to alleviate poverty but did nothing about it. He says this, such are the rich. 
They seize what belongs to all and then claim the right of possession to monopolize it. But if everyone took for themselves enough to meet his own wants and gave the, up the rest to those who needed it, there would be no rich and no poor. John Chrysostom, one of the renowned preachers of the early church, said that, I beg you remember this without fail, that not to share your own wealth with the poor is theft from the poor and deprivation of their means of life. We do not possess our own wealth, but theirs. Now, we love the early church fathers for their orthodoxy and representation of the doctrines of the true church, but we must also consider the challenging call of orthopraxy that the early church fathers held on to when it came to viewing wealth and our staunch pursuit of the love of money which comes to the neglect of those around us. These sound terribly uncomfortable to our American ears. And don't get me wrong, the Bible is not against growing and building wealth responsibly. But it begs us to question how much we really love things over meeting the needs of the saints. How much we really do value profit over people. And to really consider ourselves, what does it mean to give sacrificially to ensure that those within the community of Christ are being cared for? Uh, so it was this united in commonality which led to a uniting in generosity, but it also meant being united in hospitality. They were meeting in each other's homes and breaking bread in there. In verse 46. Now, when we think about this word hospitality, um, in our modern-day sense, we think of this sort of very stressful experience for those who, who, who exhibit it, right? We think of ornate parties, fun and decorative themes, cleaning every square inch of our homes, food and drink that is, is, is at this sort of upscale level. And, and that's not what being hospitable meant here, although those things are not certainly bad things. Hospitality isn't showing people our homes in the greatest and best sides of us. Uh, you see, hospitality back in the context of the early church was more of a matter of survival, in a safe haven, in a world where to travel was to actually risk life and death. Inns were notorious, you see, for being in bad condition. They were often equated by many historical uh, accounts of inns as the equivalent of staying in a brothel. To try and find rest in an inn was to risk getting robbed, kidnapped, or killed. Even the philosopher Plato would write about how travelers would be held ransom by innkeepers that needed to be paid off before they could leave. And inns knowingly were hugely expensive, right? paying for beds that were ridden with fleas and other diseases. Think of a sort of like a very unregulated Airbnb, just real terrible places to live in. So Christians came onto the scene. They first started popping up, and one of the markers that they were known for in their communities, around the non-believing community, was that they were hospitable to anyone who would come into their homes. Well, you can probably imagine what came next when the word spread about these Christians who were opening up their homes. They were taken advantage of. Uh, their property was destroyed. The natural order of their houses were ruined. And yet, despite that, the church persisted in hospitality. Why? The early church knew that the posture of the front door of your home shows the world of the posture of the king that invites us to his heavenly home, okay, to all that would call his name. Now, let's take it back to our modern context. Speaking truthfully here, uh, this is a big danger and idol for us in those who are fiercely protective of our own home environments. The writer Ross Lester in his excellent article, uh, 
what I've learned as a suburban church planner. I think it's mandatory reading for all of us. Uh, he writes this, and I just want to challenge us here with this statement that he gives us. The suburbs are in many ways an attempt to create an alternate kingdom, a place of peace and security here on earth. We must be reminded that our homes as suburbanites are mission stations, outposts of hospitality, kindness, and grace in an increasingly hostile context. They are orchids where the fruit of the Spirit can be grown and shared. To be united in generosity, to be united in commonality, is to consider ourselves how to be united in hospitality. In a generation that is gearing towards greater and greater isolationism, greater tribalism, greater division, how can the church move towards treating our homes as a model of the heavenly home that Christ prepares for us? So these united fronts of commonality, generosity, hospitality, these are the fronts of the outpouring of the orthodoxy that they devoted themselves to, into correct orthopraxy, right practice. And when those things combine, we now answer our last question. Of what is a growing church? We see here that a growing church was growing in several things here. In verse 46 and 47, they were growing in the gladness of their hearts. They were growing in their generosity. They were growing in their worship and praising God day by day by day and growing in favor with all the people and growing in number. Now, so much of the conversation, uh, the very good and necessary conversation about church growth is that it's often centered on you know, these very tangible metrics. Church turnover rates, church closing rates, percentages of the demographics of your congregation, giving units, etc., etc. And all these are, are, are not evil. They're common grace principles that can help a church understand its impact. But the mistake that we can run into is believing that these form the foundations of a growing church. And that would be a mistake. A healthy church, a growing church, isn't just one that looks great on a spreadsheet. Consider what this passage is, is saying. The goal of a growing church is a church growing in gladness, in joy, in breaking of bread, in sharing meals together, in coming to worship together, in sacrificially being generous to one another, in joy, sharing their, their positive witness to the outside world. In other words, a, a true growing church might have nothing to do with the typical statistics that we often look towards in what we think a growing church might be. But nevertheless, verse 47 does give us this pause to think about this. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Being saved. So in other words, part of the church activity is not just seeking uh, numbers, right? And there's so many different ways that you can do that. The church was seeking the salvation of those who were lost to be found in Jesus Christ. Now, I, I, the church's main mission, uh, I don't believe, should be is what's known as sort of being a seeker-sensitive church, uh, which is uh, a title given meaning that in the name of relevancy, we water down the gospel that Nothing we would ever say would cause a non-believer to really consider what it means to follow Jesus. That's not what this passage is talking about here. Um, even though, if we really wanted to do something like that, I, I bet we could grow the church quite rapidly. <laughs> Nor, on the other flip side of that, uh, we could grow the church through outrage. We could grow the church in hating uh, the outside world so much that we can really create a subculture where, and the algorithms show this, 
through outrage, you can grow really quickly also too, if you wanted to. But if what verse 47 is saying is true, in our witness to the outside world, in the posture of our evangelism, in the love and gladness of our care and generosity towards one another, such a window of God's generous love and grace towards us, it will cause people outside of the community to wonder how such a group could love each other. That causes them to desire it. That causes them to, to actually, uh, our reputations is one as favorable in the community that surrounds us. So that should make us pause to think that, yes, they may hate Jesus. They may condemn our ideas. They may mock it. But when they look into our community, they can't help but be in favor of the kind of love and generosity that we share with one another. The Hindu ethicist Gandhi, uh, who was known for his nonviolence approach, when he was 18 years old, there's a famous story. He was given a Bible while studying with a fellow Christian in London. So Gandhi read the Sermon on the Mount, and he marveled actually in the ways that the, that the, that the teachings of Jesus drew him in. He saw here a Christ of great compassion and grace and started making Matthew's gospel an everyday reality for him. Even way past into his life, he would, he would read the Sermon on the Mount on a regular basis, even though he rejected Christianity. But what he was turned off by was the approach of the Christian church in the way in which they were called to live the way that Jesus was commanding on the Sermon on the Mount, but in the way that it played out in the day-to-day -day reality of life. When a writer asked him, how does Christianity grow in India? Gandhi merely replied this. I would suggest, first of all, that all of you Christians, missionaries, and all begin to live more like Jesus Christ. We all realize, and part of our failure as a church, is we fall short of these five verses, don't we? We fall short to live up this kind of mission as a body. Uh, conflict breeds. Uh, sin happens, and we're left hurting deeply and wondering how could the church that was so committed to these values, to, so devoted uh, to the Lord, could do this and could wound us in this way. We'll talk more in the upcoming weeks about when this happens and how do we respond, but, but, but it's texts like this one that when we look at it, it should recenter us should not make us bitter towards what the church is as it stands right now, but it should recenter us to what we could be and pivots us back to the truth that we are united to a Christ who is greater than all of our sins. The cross reminds us of all of these things here, the generous love of Christ, the outpouring of his blood that satisfied our greatest and deepest need that we were once separated from God and we have a way back to him. Christ's teachings about the centrality of himself in Scripture, speaks to the promises of God being true to a world in, in need of it. God longs to restore his people, calls for us to live in a kingdom community, calls us to be free from the pains of brokenness, that the fellowship of believers and the love we share is an intimacy that represents the love of God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what has God promised us? He promises that one day he will break bread with us again in the ultimate wedding feast of the Lamb. We have a great advocate who in the high priestly prayers prays for us that we are his. See, Jesus lives out 
all these things that the church devoted themselves to, that the church was united under friends. Ultimately, the church is about Jesus. We're not about our own self-preservation, our own ideology, even, dare I say, our own tribalism or methodology. But rather, it's about lifting up and making the name of Christ great through our lives. This is the kingdom community that we all long for. And so with the Holy Spirit's power as a church, let's, as we look at this passage, church, let's be the church. Let's be the church that we were called to be. And let's go forth to a waiting world in need of this kind of gospel community. Because when you're here, you're family. Let's pray together.